When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, oh, the farmer is the man who feeds them all. If you'll only look and see, I think you will agree that the farmer is the man who feeds them all. Oh, the farmer is the man. Welcome to the Daedalus Workshop, episode 16. We're doing chapter 12 of A People's History of the United States, titled Robber, Barons, and Rebels. But first, we've got The Farmer is the Man Who Feeds Us All, performed by Pete Seeger, a classic American industrial ballad. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jason. And the preacher and the cook go a-strolling by the brook, but the farmer is the man who feeds them all. Oh, the farmer is the man, the farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. With the interest rate so high, it's a wonder he don't die, for the mortgage man's the one that gets it all. Nice. How's it going, Ethan? Uh, Good. So so last week I was talking about this uh, philosophical movement called German idealism. Sure. And I was like, I'm going to learn some more about German idealism. So I went on to iTunes U and subscribed to a, a college class, I think from, I don't know, maybe New, or- New Orleans University. So iTunes U, this is like a, a, an app on the yeah, phone. It's an app. That's kind of like education you, podcast yeah, based. You, well, you or? get New Orleans University, you get Yale courses, okay. you get all kinds of stuff on there. Yeah. Is it free? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Completely okay. free. Yeah. Very cool. So I get German idealism. I listen to the first, uh, the first lecture, I buy two books, get them on Amazon, start reading a little bit. And I'm like, wow, you know, maybe I should learn about Kant first because German idealism came out of the philosophy of uh, Kant. Mm-hmm. So I go to iTunes, you know, get a class on Kant. I'm like, all right. Listen to the first lecture. I'm like, wow, you know, I kind of I want to know, like, you know what, what Kant came out of. Yeah. So I go on to iTunes, you and I get a class on uh, the history of modern philosophy. Yeah. So uh, we just did Copernicus, and I'm in the middle of the Dark Ages. And someday, I swear I'll get to German idealism. <laughs> this is just how my brain works. And I go yeah, like, yeah. Nah, I need, to, I need, I need where this came from. I, ha- I keep. It takes me forever to just, learn anything. Just keep going back. Keep going. So back. I keep going back, and yeah. So that uh, that was that, that was they sent a, a good part of my week. That sounds like my uh, my browser tabs when I'm going through headlines each morning, just like checking into the news. Mm. I'll like open a headline. Okay, yeah, I'm going to read that. And then I'll just keep scanning like the main page. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read that. And then I'll start reading and they reference another, another article or yeah, some data yeah, source. Yeah, and be like, yeah, well, yeah. I'm going to read that. And then I have so many articles open that all I've read are the headlines and I never have time to get to them. So much. But you are getting through world. it. So even better. Like you're actually getting through it. Oh, so yeah, good. I will yeah. get through it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I listen to I go to work and do my do my little job and listen to lectures on philosophy. And, you know, I get through about eight hours a day. So, yeah, I'll get there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, also, I wanted to update you on my um, my other side project, my my studies in Marxism. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Because, yeah, um, you know, he's starting to make more frequent appearances in this this little show this little book yeah so here's uh this is one of the things i learned this week was when you think about marxism you have to think about three separate strands okay that marx was interested in and writing about frederick engels as well okay uh so the first is kind of like you're more standard like we think about like communism you go ah it's marx da, da, da. sure that's kind of what everything's about sort of economic political yep. ideas this is the way forward out of capitalism into this other thing sure yep Okay, so then there's like the the actual philosophy, which is called dialectical materialism, and dialectics. I already know why it's not as popular. Dialectics <laughs> comes out of Hegel, who's yeah. in German idealism. 
Okay. So it's like, it has to do with contradiction. It's pretty technical. Hegel's difficult to read, which is why I want to do all this former work before I get to this uh, stuff. So I have like a good grounding in <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The third strand is called historical materialism. Some people reference it as like the science of Marxism. So dialectical materialism is the philosophy of Marxism. Okay. Historical materialism is the science of Marxism. This is where it gets interesting. So Marx would argue that history is the result of material conditions. Okay. Like via the modes of production. Sure. Rather than ideas or great men. So you know like the okay. great men view of history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is just great people do great things, and that's what history comes. Yeah. Ideas or ideals, that's sort of like where liberalism comes out of. Sure. Which I thought was interesting because uh, when we were talking about sort of like the founding fathers, right? you kept arguing for ideals, Yeah. and I kept arguing for sort of like this is the reality of conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought it was interesting to go, oh, there it is. There's, there's a really, we were actually kind of taking these opposing sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually kind of like parts of historical materialism because sure. I was using it in my tool belt without realizing what it what, what it was. Yeah. yeah, like having a name to it. So or I think it does have some validity to be able to go like, yeah, there are these great ideas out there, mm-hmm. but those ideas have to get into material reality. Right. I'm using yeah. material to in ways there, but um, they have to get into reality. They have to get into yeah. everyday use. Otherwise, what, what good is an idea if it's not here and now? Yeah, getting to the actual practical day to day, however it's enacted. Okay. Well, 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 well. What'd you do this week? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, nothing that fun. That's for sure. Just, you know, charts and graphs, baby. Picking colors. There we go. Making lines. Woo! That, that finance life. Heck yeah. Charts and <laughs> graphs, baby. <laughs> uh, speaking of that finance life, this chapter starts with the robber barons, <laughs> JP Morgan. Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller. We're also going to hit on the railroad, President Grover Cleveland, the (laughs) Sherman Antitrust Act, the Supreme Court, again, and farmers who feed us all. That's right. Brought to you by J.P. Morgan. (laughs) Essentially, uh, this chapter covers what was happening in rural America between the Civil War and 1900. Yep. Like the last four chapters, they've all ended at 1900. One day, I swear, we'll get to good old 1901. <laughs> I uh, this has been really helpful how he structured these chapters, where you just keep going back. It's like uh, it's like how um, Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, it's like Groundhog Day, or like how uh, Game of Thrones was written. I think it's like book three and four are the exact same timeline. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, split yeah. out the characters because like there's too many characters, so you got to do them both. Uh, it. It, it helps contextualize like when all this was happening and also how much was happening all at the same time that has just been sucked into like we call the the black historic the historical black hole that was this the civil war it just sucked everything in it is it wild you couldn't see it it yeah. is super wild to think about all these other movements that were <clears throat> you know big or small whatever mm-hmm. happening at the same time yeah but so i'm excited let's go all right quote in the year 1877 the signals were given for the rest of the century the black would be put back. The strikes of white workers would not be tolerated. The industrial and political elites of North and South would take hold of the country and organize the greatest march of economic growth in human history. They would do it with the aid of and at the expense of 
black labor, white labor, Chinese labor, European immigrant labor, female labor, rewarding them differently by race, sex, national origin, and social class in such a way as to create separate levels of oppression, a skillful terracing to stabilize the pyramid of wealth. And if you're keeping track on your oppression bingo card, uh, this is the first appearance of Chinese labor. So there we go. Got a new one. Between the Civil War and 1900, steam and electricity replaced human muscle. Iron replaced wood and steel replaced iron. Before the Bessemer process, iron was hardened into steel at the rate of three to five tons a day. Now, the same amount could be processed in 15 minutes. Machines could now drive steel tools. Oil could lubricate machines and light homes, streets, factories. People and goods could move by railroad propelled by steam along steel rails. By 1900, there were 193,000 miles of railroad. The telephone, the typewriter, and the adding machine speeded up the work of business. Hey, this is sounding great. Uh, technological advance. Nothing. It's good. All good. Classic Jason move. It's all great. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Machines change farming. Before the Civil War, it took 61 hours of labor to produce an acre of wheat. By 1900, it took three hours, 19 minutes. Manufactured ice enabled the transport of food over long distances, and the industry of meatpacking was born. Steam drove textile mill spindles. It drove sewing machines. It came from coal. Pneumatic drills now drill deeper into the earth for coal. In 1860, 14 million tons of coal were mined. By 1884, it was 100 million tons. More coal meant more steel because coal furnaces converted iron into steel. By 1880, a million tons of steel were being produced. By 1910, 25 million tons. By now, electricity was beginning to replace steam. Electrical wire needed copper, of which 30,000 tons were produced in 1880, 500,000 tons by 1910. To accomplish all this required ingenious inventors of new processes and new machines, clever organizers and administrators of the new corporations, a country rich with land and minerals, and a huge supply of human beings through the back-breaking, unhealthful, and dangerous work. Immigrants would come from Europe and China to make the new labor force. Farmers unable to buy the new machinery or pay the new railroad rates would move to the cities. Between 1860 and 1914, New York grew from 850,000 to 4 million. Chicago from 110,000 to 2 million. Philadelphia from 650,000 to 1.5 million. For reference, I was in Nashville last year and... A lot of people, when they talk about Nashville, they talk about how the city has been booming, and it has been. But over the last decade, their population increased by 10%. Over this period of time, I know it's like four decades, but New York's population increased by 370%. So you're saying Nashville is just like child's play? I, yeah. Like, like, where you, like where are you at, Nashville? Yeah, exactly. Like show up, Like Nashville. step it up. Like let's go. But yeah, for just for like that city would be considered modern times booming right now. This is like can't even fathom just you could spend 40 years living in that city if you had been born there or moved there and each decade it would be unrecognizable from the decade before just as far as like density and population and how far it sprawls crazy that is wild yeah um now to the railroads quote the first transcontinental railroad was built with blood sweat politics and thievery out of the meeting of the union pacific and central pacific railroads 
The Central Pacific started on the West Coast going east. It spent 200000 in Washington on bribes to get 9 million acres of free land and $24 million in bonds and paid $79 million in overpayment of $36 million to a construction company, which really was its own. The construction good idea. was done by 3,000 Irish and 10,000 Chinese over a period of four years working for $1 or $2 a day. The Union Pacific started in Nebraska going west. It had been given 12 million acres of free land and $27 million in government bonds. It created the Credit Mobilier Company and gave them $94 million for construction when the actual cost was $44 million. Shares were sold cheaply to congressmen to prevent investigation. This was the suggestion of Massachusetts Congressman Oakes Ames, a shovel manufacturer and director of Credit Mobiliere, who said, there is no difficulty in getting men to look after their own property. <laughs> the Union Pacific used 20,000 workers, war veterans, and Irish immigrants who laid five miles of track a day and died by the hundreds in the heat, the cold, and the battles with Indians opposing the invasion of their territory. Both railroads used longer, twisting routes to get subsidies from towns they went through. In 1869, amid music and speeches, the two crooked lines... That's a good That's line. Good. That was yeah. a great line by Zen. Crooked yeah. lines. Met in Utah. It's a double entendre, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. The wild fraud on the railroads led to more control of railroad finances by bankers who wanted more stability. Profit by law rather than by theft. By the 1890s, most of the country's railway mileage was concentrated in six huge systems. Four of these were completely or partially controlled by the House of Morgan, and two others by the bankers, Kuhn, Loeb, and company. J.P. Morgan had started before the war as the son of a banker who began selling stocks for the railroads for good commissions. During the Civil War, he bought 5,000 rifles for 3 bucks and 50 cents each from an army arsenal and sold them to a general in the field for 22 bucks each. The rifles were defective and would shoot off the thumbs of the soldiers using them. <laughs> a congressional committee noted this in the small print of an obscure report but a federal judge upheld the deal as the fulfillment of a valid legal contract. Morgan had escaped military service in the Civil War by paying $300 to a substitute. Which we spoke about in a prior episode, that this was possible. Common practice by the rich. Yep. So did John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Philip Armoire, Jay Gold, and James Mellon. Mellon's father had written to him that a man may be a patriot without risking his own life or sacrificing his health. There are plenty of lives less valuable. In 1895... <laughs> Sorry. I was like, yeah. When I, The first time I read it, I was like, sure, okay, that, that makes sense. And then the last line. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, twist. Twist, twist. yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1895, the gold reserve of the United States was depleted while 26 New York City banks had $129 million in gold in their vaults. A syndicate of bankers headed by J.P. Morgan & Company, August Belmont & Company, the National City Bank, and others offered to give the government gold in exchange for bonds. President Grover Cleveland agreed. The bankers immediately resold the bonds at higher prices, making $18 million in profit. Yeah, baby. I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine a level of wealth that the private bankers had to be able to bail out the entire United States federal government at this time. Like, that, that's wild. Wild times. We're on the gold standard, which is an important note about that. They were on the gold standard at the time. 
continuing the quote, a journalist wrote, if a man wants to buy beef, he must go to the butcher. If Mr. Cleveland wants much gold, he must go to the big banker. While making his fortune, Morgan brought rationality and organization to the national economy. He kept the system stable. He said, we do not want financial convulsions and have one thing one day and another thing another day. He linked railroads to one another, all of them to banks, banks to insurance companies. By 1900, he controlled 100,000 miles of railroad, half the country's mileage. Three insurance companies dominated by the Morgan Group had a billion dollars in assets. They had $50 million a year to invest, money given by ordinary people for their insurance policies. Louis Brandei, describing this in his book, Other People's Money, before he became a Supreme Court justice, wrote, they control the people through the people's own money. John D. Rockefeller started as a bookkeeper in Cleveland, became a merchant, accumulated money, and decided that in the new industry of oil, who controlled the oil refineries controlled the industry. He bought his first oil refinery in 1862 and by 1870 set up Standard Oil Company of Ohio, made secret agreements with railroads to ship his oil with them if they gave him rebates, discounts on their prices, and thus drove competitors out of business. One independent refiner said, if we did not sell out, we would be crushed out. There was only one buyer on the market and we had to sell at their terms. Memos like this one passed among Standard Oil officials. Wilkerson and company received a car of oil Monday 13th. Please turn another screw. <laughs> a rival refinery in Buffalo was rocked by a small explosion arranged by Standard Oil officials with the refinery's chief mechanic. This, this is back when companies like actually battled it out. Yeah, like battle is not a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. not not metaphor here. Yeah. The Standard Oil Company, by 1899, was a holding company which controlled the stock of many other companies. The capital was $110 million. The profit was $45 million a year. And John D. Rockefeller's fortune was estimated at $200 million. Before long, he would move into iron, copper, coal, shipping, and banking, Chase Manhattan Bank. Profits would be $81 million a year, and the Rockefeller fortune would total $2 billion. Andrew Carnegie was a telegraph clerk at 17, then secretary to the head of the Pennsylvania Railroad, then broker in Wall Street selling railroad bonds for huge commissions, and was soon a millionaire. He went to London in 1872, saw the new Bessemer method of producing steel, and returned to the United States to build a million-dollar steel plant. Foreign competition was kept out by a high tariff conveniently set by Congress. And by 1880, Carnegie was producing 10,000 tons of steel a month, making $1.5 million a year in profit. By 1900, he was making $40 million a year. And that year, at a dinner party, he agreed to sell his steel company to J.P. Morgan. He scribbled the price on a note, $492 million. <laughs> Morgan then formed the U.S. Steel Corporation, combining Carnegie's corporation with others. He sold stocks and bonds for $1,300,000,000, about $400 million more than the combined worth of the companies, and took a fee of $150 million for arranging the consolidation. How could dividends be paid to all those stockholders and bondholders? By making sure Congress passed tariffs keeping out foreign steel by closing off competition and maintaining the price at $28 a ton 
and by working 200,000 men 12 hours a day for wages that barely kept their families alive. And so it went. In industry after industry, shrewd, efficient businessmen building empires, choking out competition, maintaining high prices, keeping wages low, using government subsidies, these industries were the first beneficiaries of the welfare state. By the turn of the century, American Telephone and Telegraph had a monopoly of the nation's telephone system. International Harvester made 85% of all farm machinery. And in every other industry, resources became concentrated, controlled. The banks had interests in so many of these monopolies as to create an interlocking network of powerful corporation directors, each of whom sat on the boards of many other corporations. According to a Senate report of the early 20th century, Morgan, at its peak, sat on the board of 48 corporations. Rockefeller, 37 corporations. End quote. That's a that's a busy schedule, man. Thirty seven <laughs> board seats. Yikes. Um, I started. I think it's important to think about these guys uh, and these industries at this time. Really like the the tech giants of today, not just in their size and their dominance in the marketplace, but how they got that big and how they became don- dominant. It was through new industry, like uh, creating new tech, new industry. New products. Well, I mean, Carnegie uh, went to London, mm-hmm. saw the new Bessemer method, yep, and then came back and was like, "We're going to put this out." So it was a brand new thing. Yeah, so they're bringing disruptive technologies. I, I always had trouble thinking thinking about it that way. It wasn't until like this read through, where you know, looking back at the steel industry, the rail industry, even finance at this time in the United States, that I wasn't really thinking about it like the iPhone, like Google search engine. Like stuff like that, where it, but it was, it was super disruptive technology. Where anytime there is a disruptive technology or a new industry is created on the back of some technological leap forward, um, there's a lack of regulation. So it allows in like very rapid consolidation of the control over that technology. Because at this time, and I mean, there's some stuff now where like new tech is kind of like coming out in a much more, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, like open source format. Sure. Um, if you think of like if you think of like the cryptocurrencies and stuff, it's very like open source, very collaborative. But when you have control over the new method of getting oil out of the ground, or the new method of producing steel, or and it's producing something that is leaps and bounds ahead of anything that existed before, that's going to create a de facto monopoly just because you have the tech, you invented it. And it is going to allow for rapid consolidation within these industries as like as the demand for your new product or your new service uh, becomes significantly higher than anyone else. But yeah, I, I mean, because you you can't regulate what doesn't exist. Correct. Yeah. So something is truly new. There's no rules yet. Yeah. Um, and I guess I don't know. I guess I I don't have specific thoughts about like how long. To wait before you put rules on something. Well, regulation is always going to be slow because. But cause it, do, it does. It does seem to me that it always takes, perhaps longer than we feel it should. Yeah. Well, because part of the problem is you have to understand what it is before you start applying regulations to it. Would you agree that the people making or doing the thing they don't even necessarily understand what it is? Making. So, like, okay, um, Steve Jobs gets the iPhone. Sure. Did Apple understand what the iPhone was going to do? 
You know what I mean? Like, could they sure. could they understand the implications <clears throat> of putting a phone in everyone's pocket, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think like the uh, in broad strokes, I think yes. I think you think so. Okay, I think the well, I think the people, the guys that like drive this sort of development, the visionaries, the visionaries, broad strokes they understand why it needs to be driven to completion. Like, like jobs understood the val like the, like the untapped value that was there by creating this like all encompassing smartphone device. Yeah, yeah. Even if he didn't see like some of maybe like the social side effects or, or couldn't have predicted how integrated it has now become, but it was right. Like that's part of being a visionary. It's like broad strokes and figuring out what is the most important element and like, laser focused on that we have we do have something else happening here though because new industries just like just like today and again thinking about like the rise of google apple amazon and the consolidation of power within those spaces as far as dominance in the marketplace some in some ways creating a de facto monopoly but then the other thing that was happening at the same time is uh corruption bribery Outright like <laughs> attacks on on refineries, small explosion, <laughs> small explosion, small <laughs> explosion, and that's like um, I think that that happens today in different ways. Uh, we have we have more regulatory infrastructure built up now, so it's harder to like go bomb your rival's server net farm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there are there are ways that that takes place. But that's that to me that's a big word that's missing from this opening thing when it's talking about. The industrialization of America on the and and like the profit seeking of, of capitalists on the backs of the poor and downtrodden trodden is corruption. Yeah, I mean like, he says bribes. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't use the word corruption, but I don't think he's like arguing that's not corrupt. Well, well, certainly he's, he's arguing that's corrupt. Uh, I in, no, he's arguing that that act is corrupt. But right, he like he sums up he sums it up that these are like shrewd and efficient business practices. Like, oh. I, I would say no. I would say that's far out. Like blowing up a rival's refinery sure, is sure, far sure. outside true and efficient business practices. That's that's well, just like okay. That's like goonish thuggery. He says shrewd, efficient businessmen. Businessmen, yeah, yeah. Not business practices. That's fair. I uh, oversummarized there, um, but he he does something else in this that that <clears throat> Zin speaking of he. Within this section, he does two things where, where he shows evidence and stories of, of corruption, what what I what we refer to now as like crony capitalism. And so, and you, myself, and Zinn would all agree corruption, no good. No good. Okay. <laughs> crony capitalism, bad. So yeah, giving discounted shares to congressmen to get favors, bad. Also now illegal. Um but then he then he just like works into this descriptions of how things actually work in like a good way as like kind of also evidence of of how power comes together one was like his description of life insurance is just how life insurance works you pay premiums to off to offload your risk and those premiums go to whoever is offering you the life insurance policy they pull up your premiums and everyone else who's buying insurance from them and invest it so that way if it's if it's life insurance um when you die the money's there to pay you because you're buying more, typically, you're buying more life insurance than you'll ever pay in in premiums. So they have to invest it in the marketplace and grow it. So that way it's there for you at the end of it. Now, again, I know there was way more cronyism, way more 
way more inefficiencies in the market at this time. But that was just like, he's just describing how life insurance works. It's not, it's not, wouldn't be fair if you're trying to wrap it up with all of this other bad stuff that you're pointing at. So you, you've got some pretty flowers and some weeds, some weed and some chaff, some sheep and some goats, and then yeah. there's got to be some sorting. you yeah. got to get in there. you got to pull the bad stuff out. But be careful because you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, and I don't want to, uh, like, I don't want to insult him, but I, this makes me curious on, on his understanding of certain financial instruments. If he's so focused on, because he doesn't like, uh, fair to say, Zinn does not like the prof- profits. Doesn't well, really believe in like he, the profit motive. He's not a fan of capitalism, <laughs> right? Which is the profit motive is deep part of that. Because um, his description of company value after a merger is like basically he's like you bought two companies at two prices and then combined them together, and then was able to raise more money than the two separate. Like they became more valuable together, and it's like well, yeah, like that's why you merge companies. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, again. JP Morgan's, then he describes something that is like really should raise an eyebrow. He describes a fee on the, what we would now call the brokerage of it. So the 1.3 billion that they sold in stocks and bonds, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the new, the valuation of this new company, merge company. I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Yep. And the fee was 11 and percent. Like that's like, what? That's insane. I don't know what standard brokerage fees were at the time or kind of investment banker fees were at the time. Kay. If there was anything standard, that's insane. Like that's crazy. Eleven and a half percent is yeah, super inefficient. Wild. Like, who would pay that? Apparently, so, people did. Yeah, and that's where a lot of what I'm seeing in these stories here, there just seems to be massive inefficiencies when it comes to pricing. I think a big part of it is just lack of information. There's just a lack of insight into like what's happening, uh, just like wh- who's paying what. Uh, we call it price discovery. There's yep. a lack of price discovery. Um, so yeah, that could. Well, and we're, what, uh, 150 years into capitalism-ish? Is that, I don't know. It's close. It's close. Oh, yeah. So going back to, like, Adam Smith, which is kind of like the base, like the the start, the kicking off point. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, the idea that, like, people haven't figured out all the technicalities of this kind of stuff, it's not, to me, that's not super surprising when I think about uh, capitalism as a new technology. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the, there's just oh, another thing that he pointed out. <laughs> Sorry, the stan- ooh, ah, ooh, yeah, charts, graphs, ooh, finance. <laughs> no, but saying the Standard Oil Company made secret agreements with railroads to ship his oil with them if they gave him rebates. I like. What do you mean by secret agreements? That makes it sound sneaky. But if they're just like, "Hey, we won't ship our oil on your lines unless you give us a discount," that's standard business practice. That you can negotiate between two companies and you don't want your competitors to know what rate you're getting to ship your products. Like if you're, if you have uh, like Amazon, now they're delivering on their own. They had a different shipping rate with UPS than Joe's flower shop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. They just negotiate it. So I, and that's but what if it was a secret? What if nobody knew? It, it, yeah, that's what, what would Joe's flower shop do? Yeah, I'm like of course it's a secret. You wouldn't want your Joe would be mad. Yeah. He'd be upset. Yeah, but then he combines. He it sells with, good flowers. He yeah, he's, he ships like two packages a week. Yeah, but Amazon ships like two hundred million. Maybe they'll get a little bit of a discount. Yeah, UPS does way more business, so it's it's worthwhile to give them. Yeah, you give them a discount. You give them a cut. Uh, but but yeah, there's definitely. 
and I would be really, I'm very curious to learn more about this, just massive price inefficiencies. And one hmm. thing to our dear listeners out there, um, pay attention when, when someone's talking about profit ever, when they mention profit, it, if it's in a good or bad light and they just give you a dollar amount, just be aware that that is basically useless information. If you say a company made one and a half million dollars in profit year over like each year at this time period, that doesn't actually tell you anything. It's designed to make you think like, oh, that's a lot of money. A million dollars is a lot of money. You don't know what the revenues were. You don't know what the actual profit margin was. If the revenues were $10 billion and they made a million dollars in profit, that's a terrible company. They did a really bad job. That's a good point. That's a good point. If the revenues were a million and a half dollars and they made a million dollars in profit, there is massive inefficiencies in the market. And those gaps need to be closed by competitors, by removal of kind of like uh, laws that maybe are enabling that type of practice. So just like be aware of that whenever somebody's talking profit. The number itself is basically meaningless unless you have it relative to the actual kind of the, the, the income statement of the company. Just how did they generate that profit? And he does it here where he talks about a big profit number. Uh, JP Morgan, I think it was, or one of the steel companies, $40 million in profit a year. And then says on the backs of 200,000 laborers making a dollar or $2 a day. So that juxtaposition is made to show um, immense greed and like oppression of these workers. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but I'm saying you can't actually tie those two things together. They're directly. not causally linked. We don't, right, because we don't know the other costs. We don't know what they were paying for the raw materials, what they were having to lay out in transportation costs. We don't know how much, like, and we don't know what their revenues were. So we don't know if that's actually like, like think Walmart, right? Walmart's profit margin on an individual product, I think is like, it's less than 3%. Most of the stuff in their store, the common goods, they make basically zero money on because that's designed to get you in there. And then they have other products that have a, a higher profit margin on them. So yeah, their profits at the end of the year are, you know, like hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's made on billions of dollars in sales. Yeah. So... Yeah, on the the note about uh, the one or two dollars a day, I think Zinn would probably argue that the issue is like J.P. Morgan's obviously not making one or two dollars a day, or whoever I don't know if it's Morgan or Carney, whichever one. Yeah, uh, the issue is the discrepancy between the worker yeah down low and the person at the top way up high. Yeah. And I it's, think I, that would be his argument. It would be. And I think it's kind of, again, a simplistic view where you just look at the guy who's making like the least amount of money. You look at the bottom and then you look at the guy at the very top and you try to equate those two people. Because the guy at the very bottom is responsible for the very specific thing he was hired to do and like nothing else. The guy at the very top is responsible for the entire operation of the company and everybody who works for it. And um, if we... I'm going to jump forward to today real quick because now CEOs, uh, you have to publish your compensation, uh, CEO compensation, and you even have to like show it as like, um, like the gap, like the income gap between your workers, like on average, like how big is the gap? I think it's, it's not, a, I think it is average worker salary, which is one of the problems with the calculation because it's not medium. Uh, maybe it is medium. I'd have to look it up, but you have to publish it now. 
okay. how much are you paying your CEO? Which is good for shareholders. Like you should know that. You should know what the CEO's total compensation is. That's relevant. But when you have a company, a super huge company that has hundreds of thousands of employees, it kind of makes sense that the guy and hundreds entire, of thousands, well not hundreds, but like hundreds of tiers. Yeah. Right. I mean you have different I mean <clears throat> it's just a big tall building and there's different floors and everybody on the floor up makes a little bit more more. Yeah. yeah. I know it's not always organized by floors, but yeah, because the responsibility as as like the number of people within your tier or within your specialty shrinks, your responsibilities go up, and as your responsibilities go up, your risk goes up, the pressure goes up. Yeah, the every corporation is a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's all fear of its moral scheme. of the story. Yeah, end quote. Goodbye. All right, signing off. No, but yeah, it, to me, I'm. It can get out of whack. And I believe at this time, it was definitely out of whack. Sure. And in okay. some industries today, it's way out of whack. Um, especially in some of the, actually, funny enough, like the steel industry is one that I think it's still out of whack in. But um, that just because the guy who's in charge of 200,000 people makes a lot of money compared to the lowest rung on the ladder, that like that doesn't necessarily mean it's unfair. Zin would disagree, but I think you're doing a good job of, of building a, a counter argument. Yeah. And I, I, yes. That's all I wanted. <laughs> um, okay. I looked up on Google when the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith came out, which is the yeah. birth of capitalism. Um, Google says March 9th, 1776. Oh, big year, 76. So really only like 100, 100, years. 100, 100 years old. The other thing I want to yeah. note, I don't know if I mentioned this before. Uh, I studied Smith in um, in actual college mm-hmm. uh, in my moral philosophy class, ethics, which I was like, oh, interesting, because Smith was originally a moral philosopher. And so that's one of the big arguments about Smith that my professor made was like, when you think about Smith, you got to remember that like his uh, economics and po- politics were like deeply linked to his ethics. Yeah. Like these things were not two separate fields. Like he was doing both work and they were in and out yeah um and that when uh we talk a lot about when capitalism gets removed from ethics yes like any sort of financial system any financial Mm -hmm. system when ethics goes that's a different field ethics has no place here in the business world right right you're gonna run into trouble that would be my argument Mm -hmm. agreed totally um okay let's get to mr president grover cleveland quote when Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, ran for president in 1884, the general impression in the country was that he opposed the power of monopolies and corporations, and that the Republican Party, whose candidate was James Blaine, stood for the wealthy. But when Cleveland defeated Blaine, Jay Gould wired him, I feel that the vast business interests of the country will be entirely safe in your hands. And he was right. One of Cleveland's <laughs> chief advisors was William Whitney, a millionaire and corporation lawyer who married into the Standard Oil fortune and was appointed by Secretary of the Navy by Cleveland. He immediately set about to create a steel navy, buying the steel at artificially high prices from Carnegie's plants. Cleveland himself assured industrialists that his election should not frighten them. No harm shall come to any business interest as a result of administrative policy so long as I am president. A transfer of executive control from one party to another does not mean any serious disturbance of existing conditions. The presidential election itself had avoided real issues. There was no clear understanding of which interests would gain and which would lose if certain policies were adopted. 
It took the usual form of election campaigns, concealing the basic similarity of the parties by dwelling on personalities, gossip, trivialities. Henry Adams, an astute literary commentator of that era, wrote to a friend about the election. We are here plunged in politics funnier than words can express. Very great issues are involved. But the amusing thing is that no one talks about real interests. By common consent, they agree to let these alone. We are afraid to discuss them. Instead of this, the press is engaged in a most amusing dispute whether Mr. Cleveland had an illegitimate child and did or did not live with more than one mistress. The <laughs> chief reform of the Cleveland administration gives away the secret of reform legislation in America. The Interstate Commerce Act of 1887 was supposed to regulate the railroads on behalf of the consumers. But Richard Olney, a lawyer for the Boston and Maine and other railroads, and soon to be Cleveland's attorney general, told railroad officials who complained about the Interstate Commerce Commission that it would not be wise to abolish the commission from a railroad point of view. He explained... The commission is or can be made of great use to the railroads. It satisfies the popular clamor for government supervision of railroads at the same time that the supervision is almost entirely nominal. The part of wisdom is not to destroy the commission, but to utilize it. <laughs> Cleveland himself, in his 1887 State of the Union message, had made a similar point, adding a warning. Opportunity for safe, careful, and deliberate reform is now offered, and none of us should be unmindful of, of a time when an abused and irritated people may insist upon a radical and sweeping rectification of their wrongs, end quote. Uh, statements like the one that Richard only makes is why it's so easy to craft an entire argument about how the elites hate you and just want you to die. I mean, there's probably some that do. Oppress you. Probably like, some that don't. <laughs> just taking advantage. It's also the Interstate Commerce Commission is a great example of regulatory capture. That's when uh, an industry or a uh, or companies companies within an industry uh, basically have total control over the regulatory agency that is supposed to be regulating them. They have so much influence. They're so in bed with either crafting the regulations themselves or just everybody who works for the uh, regulatory body used, used to, work to work in the industry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, regulatory capture is bad and it is considered very unethical. Uh, but I, one thing I wanted to, I, I, kind of a fun point, fun focus point, uh, where he mentions, um, the usual form of campaign elections, concealing the basic similarity of the parties by dwelling on personalities, gossip, and trivialities, right? Like, they're not mm -hmm. actually focusing on the real message. They're focusing on the reality show. What if the problem isn't from the party level, from, like, the, the, the two-party level handing that down to the people is like, this is what you get. You get trivialities and gossip. And just, what, if it's, what if it's that people prefer reality shows, not reality? Well, I mean, here's the what thing. What if it's consumer-driven? Here's the thing. I got some kale in my fridge. Yeah. But, like, I like a good donut. <laughs> and if I open the fridge and there's a donut and there's a kale, I'm not going to eat the kale. <laughs> right? So, like, yeah, yeah, there's a biological reality. I agree with that. However, 
you got to fight against it. Otherwise, I'm only going to eat donuts. I'm only going to eat yep. donuts. Yep. And, and I, that's bad news bears. And I don't, and I don't want to justify the practice. I dislike the practice. It still I, happens I today. agree with you that uh, I think the parties use it to their advantage. I think people yeah, exactly. are, are aware yeah. that, oh, we just give them some, he had an illegitimate child. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps the child's overseas and coming to take his father's fortune. Yep, exactly. Day. Yeah, people can get suckered in for that all day long. Um, I mean, the fact in modern day is that it's it's like you cannot become president unless you're married, and that's like a big deal. Yeah. That like that's dumb. Like who who cares? What does that prove? It's it's the it's the gossip and it's the I don't know the non realities of 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 governance that play into it. I've yep, and that apparently you can't have a beard either. Like we got to bring back the presidential beard. That's got it. Like oh, that's interesting. That's actually like blowing my mind right now. <laughs> yeah, you can't have a beard. Can't have a beard. How long has it been? How many years has it been? I don't know. Reagan didn't have a beard. I bet there wasn't anybody after Reagan that had a beard. Yeah, uh, FDR didn't have any facial hair. Uh, oh my god, Teddy Roosevelt was probably the last. That's that a long facial hair. time ago. We yeah. haven't even got there yet in this book. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah, it goes from like founders, no beards, no facial hair, to all of a sudden the beard shows up, and we just have a glorious reign of the presidential beard, and then it goes away and it never comes back. Bring back! I might start voting based on beards, just <laughs> yeah. like across, like down ballot <laughs> voting based on beards. Based on beards, just bring it back. Yeah. Oh my gosh, um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's, um, th- I think it's important to think about the issues and that's mm-hmm. kind of what, you know, you and I are trying to do is to not do, um, you know, a, a, like a, a popularity contest or yeah. yeah, a talk show with current events. Cause yeah. then all you do is talk about current events Yeah, and it's like, you're just in a sea of, uh, you don't actually ever get to like any actual issues. Yeah. Even though you think you're on issues, you're really, you're really not on issues. I was thinking about it and this analogy might get, might get muddy and lost, but part of, part of what I do in my job of creating charts and graphs is uh, I have to do some amount of coding, right? Um, like formulaic code writing. And uh, I'm not good at it. I didn't learn it in school, but I'm, I'm like good enough now to be dangerous. But because of that, uh, I've had to like learn by trial and error some best practices. So let's say I'm, I'm, writing, I, I have, I'm writing some code to perform a specific task, right? And you're going to run into to like problems, hurdles that you have to get over along the way. So you come into hurdle a uh, okay um this solves that okay a is solved and then you hit b you solve it c you solve it d you solve it what you didn't realize is there was an alternate solution that could have solved a and d at the exact same time Mm -hmm. and i think that's what happens when you're always responding to current events is you lose the big picture yeah forest for the trees yeah yeah um one, one other thing I thought of while, you, while we were going through that quote, too, is that this kind of shows, and it's going to continue to show, the, the problem of, I, I don't know what this is called, but like government spending, but the people's money. Like, where they're willing to buy steel at artificially high prices. Did you ever see uh, Gangs in New York? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great movie. The mayor of New York was, like, I guess, famously corrupt. And when they built um, the probably the the like city hall yeah it would have been city hall when they built new york city hall at the time there was a fourteen thousand dollar chair <laughs> way overpaying for tons of stuff so they could just line their pockets or the pockets of whoever they needed there we go there we go and if it's not your money 
Who cares? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't affect you in any way. And it was way harder to track this stuff. There was like informational uh, fog of war, fog of informational. There wasn't counter-tech. Finance counter tech. Counter tech hadn't been developed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just like, yeah. So with it's a problem with a lot of government spending. And you have to be able to keep an eye on those people who hold purse strings because it's not their money. So what do they care? If it makes it better for them or better for their specific constituents, like, what do they care? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll I, pay a primo. I'd argue that's a, a lack of morality, a lack of ethics. I agree. Oh, it definitely is. But it it's uh it's one of the, like so that this is two points in this little discussion where we hit where I'm from like whose responsibility is it, right? I'm with that, I'm saying there 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 are people with a lack of morality and ethics who are going to be who are going to work their way into yep. areas where it benefits them the most. Yep. And that's just always going to happen. So the responsibility yep. is on those people who see it or do have the morality and ethics to like put controls on it to prevent it from happening the best they can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that um, there's probably not enough courage in those who don't have power. Yeah. Because when uh, even when powerless people you know, you can get together and you can have courage and you change can be produced that way. Yeah. And we'll get but to it, some of that in this chapter. Change requires courage. Yeah. Where at a higher level, you don't have to be courageous to produce change. So change is far difficult from, from, from a, I mean, I guess from a lower class. Right. Right. Because you, you don't have it in, in your hands. Yeah. You have to right. fight for it. Yep. And, and organize and be in a group and it's, it's messy. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm looking at this next quote, and I uh, just the way I built it. So we ended the last one with Cleveland being president, uh-huh. and I believe this next one we're on to uh, Harrison. Harrison. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So quote: Harrison's term also saw a gesture toward reform. The Sherman Antitrust Act, passed in 1890, called itself an act to protect trade and commerce against unlawful restraints and made it illegal to form a combination or conspiracy to restrain trade in interstate or foreign commerce. Senator John Sherman, author of the act, explained the need to conciliate the critics of monopoly. They had monopolies of old, but never before such giants as in our day. You must heed their appeal or be ready for the socialist, the communist, the nihilist. Society is now disturbed by forces never felt before. I'm sorry. Wait, Ethan. Was he talking about Standard Oil or Google, Apple, and Amazon? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Supreme Court, despite its look of somber, black-robed fairness, was doing its bit for the ruling elite. How could it be independent with its members chosen by the president and ratified by the Senate? How could it be neutral between rich and poor when its members were often formerly wealthy lawyers and almost always came from the upper class? Early in the 19th century, the court laid the legal basis for a nationally regulated economy by establishing federal control over interstate commerce and the legal basis for corporate capitalism by making the contract sacred. In 1895, the court interpreted the Sherman Act so as to make it harmless. It said a monopoly of sugar refining was a monopoly in manufacturing, not commerce, and so could not be regulated by Congress through the Sherman Act, U.S. versus E.C. Knight Company. The court also said the Sherman Act could be used 
against interstate strikes, the railway strike of 1894, because they were in restraint of trade. It also declared unconstitutional a small attempt by Congress to tax high incomes at a higher rate, Pollock versus Farmers' Loan and Trust Company. In later years, it would refuse to break up the Standard Oil and American tobacco monopolies, saying the Sherman Act barred only unreasonable combinations in restraint of trade. Very soon after the 14th Amendment became law, the Supreme Court began to demolish it as a protection for blacks and to develop it as a protection for corporations. However, in 1877, a Supreme Court decision, Munn v. Illinois, approved state laws regulating the prices charged to farmers for the use of grain elevators. The grain elevator company argued it was a person being deprived of property, thus violating the 14th Amendment's declaration, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The Supreme Court disagreed, saying that grain elevators were not simply private property, but were invested with a public interest and so could be regulated. One year after that decision, the American Bar Association, organized by lawyers accustomed to serving the wealthy, began a national campaign of education to reverse the court decision. Its president said at different times, if trusts are a defensive weapon of property interests against the communistic trend, they are desirable. And monopoly is often a necessity and an advantage. By 1886, they succeeded. State legislatures, under the pressure of aroused farmers, had passed laws to regulate the rates charged farmers by the railroads. The Supreme Court that year, Wabash v. Illinois, said states could not do this, that this was an intrusion on federal power. That year alone, the court did away with 230 state laws that had been passed to regulate corporations. By this time, the Supreme Court had accepted the argument that corporations were persons and their money was property protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Supposedly, the amendment had been passed to protect Negro rights, but of the 14th Amendment cases brought before the Supreme Court between 1890 and 1910, 19 dealt with the Negro, 288 dealt with corporations. <laughs> the justices of the Supreme Court were not simply interpreters of the Constitution. They were men of certain backgrounds of certain interests. One of them, Justice Samuel Miller, had said in 1875, it is vain to contend with judges who have been at the bar the advocates for 40 years of railroad companies and all forms of associated capital. In 1893, Supreme Court Justice David J. Brewer, addressing the New York State Bar Association, said, It is the unvarying law that the wealth of the community will be in the hands of the few. The great majority of men are unwilling to endure that long self-denial and saving which makes accumulations possible. And hence, it always has been, and until human nature is remodeled, always will be true that the wealth of a nation is in the hands of a few, while the many subsist upon the proceeds of their daily toil. End quote. What do you think of that very last quote? Wealth accumulation and 
kind of like the default um, setting in human nature that most people won't do the hard work of putting off putting off um, use of their wealth to accumulate more. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that's why wealthy people get wealthy. Oh, do you think, it, what do you feel is the main way that people actually generate get wealth? The main way? Well, yeah. How do you think, like, what, how do you think that people get wealthy? Um, I think a lot of it is through like, um, I guess I, pr- I probably view wealth and poverty more through, uh, social wealth and social poverty than I do through financial wealth and financial poverty. Like, I think financial wealth more often comes out of social wealth. Okay, so being born to the right family, in the right neighborhood, with the right connections. Or or uh, maybe you get into a very good school. Mm-hmm. You come out of a bad background. Yeah. Or a, a, just a lower class background or whatever. Uh, and are able to establish connections later on in life. And then through those connections, you have more opportunities to gain financial wealth. Okay. Okay, so saying yeah, it's more um, opportunity based. I don't, uh, I don't know if I agree with that because you still have to take advantage of. Even if you go to a good school, even if you're from a bad background, you get into a good school. You still have to take advantage of it. You still have to make the most of it. Like you, um, and even if you get a really good job, I mean, in America today, there's there's tons of people that are making six figure salaries that are living paycheck to paycheck because they're not actually like saving their money or investing their money. So sure. I, don't, I don't think that's actual wealth. They give high income, but you have zero wealth. Like if you don't, uh, other than if you're underwater with your assets to your debt, like you don't have any wealth. So I agree with that, but like the opportunity for wealth is maybe, maybe six decisions away. Sure. Like sell I'll, I'll, these three <clears throat> things, downsize the house, downsize the car. That's two decisions. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fair. Change your spending habits. I mean, like it's 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 a handful of decisions away, and oh, six years from now, mm-hmm. you're wealthy. Right. Yeah. You're you're live and you're you're living in this in the circles where like yeah you have those opportunities. A handful of decisions in a yeah. handful of years, and you have wealth. Yeah. yeah. Wealth wealth is there. It is present. Mm-hmm. You're just not mining it. Yeah, and that's good to kind of like point out how it's that that's uh, within that last quote. That's not even considered. It's like that aspect of being wealthy, like the social side of it, where it's like, sure, you can you can not save a penny. You can spend every dollar you get, but if you uh, went to a good school, got a great job, and you're making a lot of money, you're not, like I said, you by definition, you don't have any wealth, but it doesn't matter because you're with, you have social wealth and you're within the right kind of like circles, areas to where if you do want to retire, all you have to do is make a few like, a few changes with your budget. Is yeah. Kind of. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Take? And even like a lot of like, if you think about like artists, a lot of those artists that, that we know the names of the famous ones, not all, but many mm. of them, we know their names because they were attached to some sort of wealthy circle. Whether they had like a wealthy patron that was funding them, that allowed them to do their art. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So like, mm-hmm. I mean, even not just like uh, people who are making money, but even you're not making a lot of money doing art, yeah. you still were in the right circle where someone could like uh, like pay your bills for you mm-hmm. so you could produce this kind of art. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take. So what would your answer be in terms of how do you produce wealth? 
Oh, unsurprisingly, it's very much focused on the literal def definition of wealth. Yeah. Which so, is what? Uh, like your assets. Yeah. The, the actual wealth that you have um, ownership of. So whatever those assets are, stocks, bonds, land, real estate, cash, whatever. Um, for, I say you generate wealth by risking it. You have to risk your assets. So you do not generate, like you do not become really wealthy by taking a paycheck and putting it under your bed every day. Like that can, you can have security and you can have comfort, but if you're talking about great wealth, the people who generate the most, they risk, they take risks. They invest either in themselves, they bet on themselves, they bet on their own ideas, or they invest in the ideas and the, the risks of others. How, how often do you think, um, I know we're just kind of spitballing, but like how often do you think that those risks are taken out of a risky situation? So like somebody that is not in stable, that is already risky, mm -hmm. and then, I mean, like, is it possible to generate wealth if, if your financial situation is currently risky? Can you just start taking risks and generate wealth, or do you need to first have stability oh. in order to take risks? That depends on the person, for sure. Like, what is what is your drive? What is your ability? What is your... If you have... <clears throat> yeah, if you have zero dollars in your bank account, you can't invest thousands of dollars into an idea that you come across, right? But what you could do is try to like, uh, like there's a lot of, um, they're like guys who kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit with, they, they go around and they find other people who can give them dollars and then they become the manager of it and they get like a small fee for that. But Oh, so they go to social circles. Social circles, there you go. <laughs> ah, look at that. But no, you're right though. And that's the thing <clears throat> where, so, so if you have a, a, a person starting out at the very bottom, right? That is like the hardest place to get out of. Because you have you have no um, um, you have no extra dollars to risk, because like you're saying, you you have a lot of personal risk in your life where you need all of those dollars just to pay your bills, pay your rent, pay your unex, un, unexpected expenses, emergencies, whatever. So you don't have that extra money to save and invest. So what do you have to do then? Well, that's where you got to try to up your skills, you up your value, or uh, like a lot of entrepreneurs, you have to have an idea that somebody else will fund for you. So you have, you become you somebody become else's risk. risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've talked about this, but um, there was a period a couple of years ago, a little while where I was mm -hmm. studying uh, poverty. I did a little tour of a couple of places that were doing interesting work in poverty. Okay. Um, down in Atlanta, there's a guy named Bob Lupton, Lupton who's written a bunch of stuff um, from a Christian point of view on poverty. And he defined poverty via relations. Yeah. His experience of poverty was um, that that's what causes poverty is lack of yeah. uh, social relationship. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and so one of the things that he advocated for and put into practice in this one neighborhood in Atlanta was mixed income housing. Okay. And I was like, ah, oh, that's really interesting. Like if you can get people of different classes to live together yeah. and to build social relationships, yeah. then exactly what you're talking about happens um, in the hallway. Right. Somebody has an idea. Right. Can I borrow this thing? And this person has two of these things. Yeah, go borrow my my second instant pot and right. start your bakery. I mean, whatever. Right. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting way to think about. It. I was like, oh, and I think I've I've definitely kind of um, I've subscribed to that. Yeah. No, I I absolutely agree with that because because anyone any entrepreneur anyone who has like a big idea they're gonna have to get investors. So then, like you were saying, that comes into like the social circles of it. 
So, yeah, and so one of the things that happens in our society today is that wealth, yeah. the more money you make, the further away you move from people who don't have money. And so there's not any natural brushing of shoulders between people who have money and people who don't have money because people with money generally insulate themselves from people who don't. And that just kind of happens mm-hmm. again and again and again and again. Mm. But Hey, one other thought I had. Yep. Because he mentions how could... Uh, how could a, a member of the Supreme Court be neutral between the rich and the poor when, or how could the Supreme Court be neutral between the rich and the poor when its members were often former wealthy lawyers and almost always came from the upper class? Um, can you dismiss someone's like actions or choices or rulings as like biased? Maybe not dismiss it, but uh, because they came from a, an upper class as like, is it impossible to rule for the lower class? And also, is it surprising that people who end up achieving seats of power were the type of people who were successful? Like from a personality makeup, right? Like there's only so many Supreme Court court seats. Yeah, yeah. You want one, there's going to be competition for it. Yeah, it's likely you wanted one at age three yeah. and have been striving your whole life for it. Yeah. So then is it surprising that those seats are taken up by people who were, you know, successful in other areas. Definitely and not. wealthy. And then is it like, is it, un, is it unfair to use that grouping, you're in the wealthy group, to kind of like criticize any actions that you might make as being just biased towards the wealthy rather than pointing to specific examples? Sure. So, I mean, okay. Um, I mean, the Supreme Court rules for the entire land, right? The yeah. Supreme Court rules for all of America. It's the highest court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like the toughest things come. It's the final word when it comes to our laws. Yeah. Uh, if you have nine people who are all elites, mm-hmm. which I, I assume they almost always are. Yeah. Um, I mean, these people are going to act. I mean, you would hope that they would act in some sort of like neutral way, but neutrality is like, I don't know. It's not, it's, it's kind of real, but it's very difficult to actually yeah. do. Um, <laughs> and if there's some sort of like, um, there's maybe a possible benefit you might gain in ruling one way or the other and there's nothing to gain on the other side. Like how often are people just going to like rule just for the purity of justice? Now, probably there's probably a few people who actually like believe in the purity of justice. Right. But I bet it's like not the majority of the court that I would, I would argue that I would argue that the most of them are going to, uh, and could be subconsciously. They're going to argue and rule in ways that benefit themselves um, in whatever that means to them, whatever that benefit is, mm-hmm. and if they all come from elites, then that's just their viewpoint. And so they might just naturally, biologically, tend toward people like them, which are people from that class. Um, now, the issue is if you were to put people from the lower class into the Supreme Court, yeah, they're not going to stay in the lower class. They're not going to stay in the lower class. And that's, that's what I haven't been able to figure out in my brain. It's like, okay, if you get people, if you elect people from lower classes up into positions of power, yeah, and if it's like... Like they have left the lower class immediately. Like they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. And so then it's like, oh, shoot. What do you... Like, I, I can't figure out how do you... Bes- besides like morality yeah. in terms of like, however you get there, right? Um, to, to wanting to be a moral person... Um, and fighting for justice or something for other people. Yeah. Really, you have to be fighting for something that doesn't benefit you. You have to convince people right. to 
argue and fight for something that does not benefit them, and that's a hard ask. Right. Do I think it's the right ask? Yes. But that's not a simple thing to convince somebody to be like, hey, you need to like spend a lot of your time and energy fighting for this thing. Yeah. It's not going to benefit you in any way whatsoever, right. but it's going to benefit other people, and it might even hurt you. You might lose money on the sure. long run on this sure. thing. That's a hard ask. Yeah. I mean, there's also the problem where, like, you elevate someone from a lower class, right, to this position of power. Even the Supreme Court is like, they don't, they would have no idea what they're doing. And I know that because, I don't know that. I think it's highly likely because to have an understanding of the law that would be necessary to be, let's say, a, a good Supreme Court justice. I know you can argue that they're all corrupt and it doesn't matter anyways. But to get to that level, you would probably, like, you would leave behind that lower class just in your pursuit of that level of knowledge, I, I think. So, okay. Uh, I don't necessarily think that, that you just in pursuit of knowledge you would. Well, because part of it is you have to practice, right? You can't just like read a book and go, I get this oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you have you, to actually if you did practice it. Step by it. step, it's like to become a lawyer. Yeah. The minute you become a lawyer, you have money. Uh, you, you can be a poor lawyer. Nowadays, I don't know about back then, but yeah. Yeah, if you're doing some type of process and you're on track for the Supreme Court. Right, you're that's gonna, what I was about. You're going to yeah. leave behind the lower class and become... In that process. Yeah, so it, just to like know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, I think you can make an argument that law, like many other fields, is full of just like jargon and all of these words. Oh, yeah, man. And then you come yeah. out the other side and you go like... Because you have, you have all kinds of people commentating on law. They're talking about law. Yeah. And it goes, how hard is it to like decide what's right and what's wrong? I'm not convinced it requires all these words personally. Well, I think it becomes a game. Like it certainly is a game and not like an actual, like, Ooh, this is fun. Here's what the law says. How can I make it say this and let's get creative. And then, and that's where things get all the jargon and the the mismatch and the, and and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not very impressed by the legal system. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we can move on. Sorry. No, no, you're good, you're good. Okay. Um, I don't even know what you're going into next, but I'm just going to start. Quote, <laughs> in those years after the Civil War, a man named Russell Conwell, oh, I like this one, a graduate of Yale Law School, a minister, an author of best-selling books, gave the same lecture, Acres of Diamonds, more than 5,000 times to audiences across the country, reaching several million people in all. His message was that Anyone could get rich if he tried hard enough. That everywhere, if people looked closely enough, were acres of diamonds. A sampling. I say that you ought to get rich and it is your duty to get rich. The men who get rich may be the most honest men you find in the community. Let me say here clearly, 98 out of 100 of the rich men of America are honest. That is why they are rich. That is why they are trusted with money. That is why they carry on great enterprises and find plenty of people to work with them. It is because they are honest men. I sympathize with the poor, but the number of poor who are to be sympathized with is very small. To sympathize with the man whom God has punished for his sins is to do wrong. Let us remember there is not a poor person in the United States who is not made poor by his own shortcomings. End quote. <laughs> so many of these dudes still exist today. You got like, you know, the Tony Robbins, the, uh, uh, yeah, like the motivational speech with the wealth speakers. Uh, that's just so funny. Uh, and and the, the, the poor people are poor because God is punishing them. Uh, is always like like kind of fascinating to me. 
Yeah, that's a that's a like a nasty ideology uh-huh. to buy into. That's a bad one. Uh huh. Yeah, and uh, and I I grew up in a church where it's kind of like the other side of it, uh, which he also mentions. Uh, no, he doesn't mention. Maybe it's in another quote. Where basically, it's, 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 if you're rich, you're honest. Oh, not not that if you're no, I I didn't grow up on that thought of it. It was more like uh, in an evangelical church where it was like money doesn't matter, so just give us your money. Uh, building up your treasure in heaven mm, type thing. Yeah. You know? um, but I actually uh, ag- do agree with one tiny part of this. Oh, here we go. I do actually agree that it's everyone's duty to quote unquote get rich. It's not always money, right? But some level of achievement. I, I agree it's everybody's duty to kind of like be the best you can be um, and and to push yourself further and to try harder and to have successes and richness in your life. Well, I mean, people in the audiences agree as well, right? Like, that's why they're there to get rich. In, oh, in his audiences. Yeah, I mean, that people are coming because they want yeah. to. They want to get rich. They want to. Yeah, like, I'm, and I'm not talking from um, the house flipping schemes or or that type. Like the quick, I'm like like true wealth. So either from the actual dollar standpoint, the the accumulation of assets and capital, and then risking it careful investment to like grow it over time or the kind of like um, the the wealth of knowledge the spiritual wealth of like finding true purpose in your life like everyone has a duty to get rich to be better than you are than you are today and better than you were yesterday like i think that um that's true and and like like i mentioned like the church i grew up in there was that like right like you want to become a better christian you want to do all this stuff but but like career growth, actual career growth is a good kind of indicator that you're becoming better at something or you're, you're becoming more disciplined. You're gaining more wealth. And that was where like, uh, I I never liked the, and no one ever said this. It was just kind of how I took it. The money doesn't matter. Give us your money. Like it does matter. It's, it's a sign that like you're, you're, you're growing and you're doing more and you're providing more value to your company, your society, your, community whatever sometimes sometimes i know i know not always but like if you're if you if you have strong morals if you have strong ethics ethics and you're pursuing success and not losing those moral and ethics you probably are providing more than you're getting i don't disagree which is why you're being compensated let's get to the new flood of immigrants arriving quote In the 1880s and 1890s, immigrants were pouring in from Europe at a faster rate than before. They all went through the harrowing ocean voyage of the poor. Now, there were not so many Irish and German immigrants as Italians, Russians, Jews, Greeks, people from Southern and Eastern Europe, even more alien to native-born Anglo-Saxons than the earlier newcomers. There was desperate economic competition among the newcomers. By 1880, Chinese immigrants brought in by the railroads through the back-breaking labor at pitiful wages numbered 75,000 in California, almost one-tenth of the population. They became the objects of continuous violence. As the immigrants became naturalized citizens, they were brought into the American two-party system, invited to be loyal to one party or the other. Their political energy thus siphoned into elections. An article in La Italia in November 1894 called for Italians to support the Republican Party. 
when American citizens of foreign birth refuse to ally themselves with the Republican Party, they make war upon their own welfare. The Republican Party stands for all that the people fight for in the old world. It is the champion of freedom, progress, order, and law. It is the steadfast foe of monarchical class rule. I wonder if my uh, grandfather's father read that. Uh, my grandfather immigrated from Italy when he was like six, but to family that was already here in the, like north of Chicago. So I just, I don't know, that'd be kind of cool. That's interesting. He also happened to be a Republican. So I was just wondering like, oh, what if his like, the Republican like came down, what if it was from this? Someone saw this, you know? Or like messaging like, similar to that. Yeah. 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 Continuing the quote. There were five and a half million immigrants in the 1880s, four million in the 1890s, creating a labor surplus that kept wages down. The immigrants were more controllable, more helpless than native workers. They were culturally displaced, at odds with one another, therefore useful as strike breakers. Often, their children worked, intensifying the problem of an oversized labor force and joblessness. In 1880, there were 1,118,000 children under 16, one out of six, at work in the United States. <laughs> With everyone working long hours, families often became strangers to one another. A pants presser named Morris Rosenfeld wrote a poem, My Boy, which became widely reprinted and recited. I have a little boy at home, a pretty little son. I think sometimes the world is mine, in him my only one. Ere dawn my labor drives me forth, tis night when I am free. A stranger am I to my child, and stranger my child to me. Perhaps it was the recognition that day-to-day -day combat was not enough, that fundamental change was needed, which stimulated the growth of revolutionary movements at this time. The Socialist Labor Party, formed in 1877, was tiny and torn by internal arguments, but it had some influence in organizing unions among foreign workers. In New York, Jewish socialists organized and put out a newspaper. In Chicago, German revolutionaries, along with native-born radicals like Albert Parsons, formed social revolutionary clubs. In 1883, an anarchist congress took place in Pittsburgh. It drew up a manifesto. All laws are directed against the working people. Even the school serves only the purpose of of furnishing the offspring of the wealthy with those qualities necessary to uphold their class domination. The children of the poor get scarcely a formal elementary training, and this, too, is mainly directed to such branches as tend to producing prejudices, arrogance, and servility, in short, want of sense. The church finally seeks to make complete idiots out of the mass and to make them forego the paradise on earth by promising a fictitious heaven. The capitalist press, on the other hand, takes care of the confusion of spirits in public life. The workers can therefore expect no help from any capitalistic party in their struggle against the existing system. They must achieve their liberation by their own efforts. As in former times, a privileged class never surrenders its tyranny. Neither can it be expected that the capitalists of this age will give up their rulership without being forced to do it. End quote. Uh, pretty like revolutionary words there. Uh, and also just that, that poem's great. It's like crystallizing what was motivating them. And the poem highlights uh, one of Marx's 
probably most famous theories, I would think, which is just uh, social alienation. Okay. Which comes about, like, so essentially, <clears throat> I mean, the, the last lines are great, right? A stranger in my to my child and stranger in my child to me. Yeah. So Marx yeah. would argue that capitalism produces that social yeah. alienation. Yeah, which is, that's, like, so interesting. Also, without the labor laws that exist now, you know, like the eight-hour workday, weekends, all that stuff where you... Someone could say that that's still happening, but in broad strokes, it's not anymore. Like you have freedom within your, with, even within your workday, to like take time to yourself for your family. You have freedom on the weekends to kind of like use your time, or even but, just like a thirty-minute lunch break. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting that you do see uh, when you get to like the upper echelons of big companies, it's like it's back to like the most successful people. They don't have time for anything. They, they become almost like a slave to the company. Now they're being compensated for it. They were chasing those powerful positions in these yeah, big yeah. companies. And they were chasing like maybe higher salary, like definitely higher salaries and all this stuff. But yeah, th those people kind of at the top, they they have no life of their own. Um, sometimes, oftentimes. Um, yeah, it is. I remember when I was a camp counselor, uh, we were in Lake Geneva and there were a lot of Chicago families that come up. And so a lot of wealthy families and... The amount of kids just came through where you could tell, like, you could tell the minute the kid got dropped off. Yeah. When it was like the kid gets like put out of the car and the family drives away, doesn't come to any like orientation and stuff. The kid just kind of like looking around and you go, hey, buddy, like, like what's up? He's like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. Like, where are your parents? Oh, they already left. You go, all right, got yeah. it. Um, Yikes. I mean, it's just so sad to see. Yeah. To see alienation among families. Yeah. And what's funny, it's not funny, it's sad, but it's just interesting that nowadays it, it it's happening uh, at the higher levels of of the class income spectrum, or at the lowest levels of the income spectrum, you have more free time unless you're working multiple jobs, right? But it, but if you're working a single job that kind of like can support uh, your family, you actually have time to yourself to see your kids. But as you climb that ladder, there's going to be more and more demands on your time, and if you don't kind of like um, choose to protect it for yourself and your family, it's you're always saying yes like you're just going to give up more and more and become more alienated well yeah and i think that you think now about in the chase of success rather than it being forced on you is what i'm saying yes yeah. um cliche stereotype i'd argue more of like a mythic structure of like mm -hmm. film television mm -hmm. you do see yeah the lower class families full of full of love and singing and whatever yeah and yeah. like joy and the upper class families yeah full of full of alienation that is that is actually that's interesting yeah 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 um yeah I, I like that he pointed out the oversized labor force finally being a problem, something I've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you've that, been ringing that bell. Yeah, the oversupply of labor. Um, I also think some of what they were struggling against at this time, they being, being kind of the laborers at the time, was a really, as mentioned earlier, a corrupt but also very chaotic marketplace. There wasn't like the, there wasn't stability in from industry to industry because this is disruption happening all over the place mass disruption even just the transition from between from one energy source to another from coal to oil that's like a huge uh, mind-blowing disruption yeah um and the people who are going to to pay the price for any technological disruption are the people with on the lowest rungs with the least skills and the least amount of capital, uh, again, capital being money or uh, assets um, that you can 
make money out of turn into money. Um, it's the, it's the, the most established players, the biggest, most powerful companies that can kind of like take the hit of these chaotic, like waves coming in. Like they can, they can ride them out. Um, yep. They can take the punches. So basically what I'm, yeah, basically what I'm saying is it's, is again, it's not necessarily a puppet master. Some of it is just like, I, I don't know. It's like, it's closer to like a scientific reality. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to yeah. say it, but no, it's I like, it. um, not trying to say like, yeah, it's hopeless. So just like, just take it, just bend over and take it. You got no, no other option, but no, but there is like, it's not necessarily some puppet master that is deciding to like ruin your life or groups of people like you. Okay. So I, I got a question for you. Uh, in Albert Parsons' radical speech, uh-huh. I think it's Parsons, um, he says something that kind of reminds me of something that you've said. Sure. Now I'm 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 tweaking the language here just slightly, but I believe a couple I think a couple times you said like the government doesn't care about you. You've got to like just on your own efforts, yeah, figure out your life. Right. Right. And it seems like you and Parsons might be in agreement on that. Yeah, no, I was, as I was reading through this, I was chuckling, especially at the end where he's talking about the workers can therefore expect no help from any capitalist party in their struggle against the existing system. They must achieve their liberation by their own efforts. And I'm just like, man, I might've been like in the front lines with this guy. Like I might've been going to the meetings at this time, just being like, yeah, let's get it. Uh, because yeah, I do like, I, I, that is something that I, I, I deeply hold like government doesn't care about you because i think it's incapable of caring about you but i view nowadays that the government is the the true powerful force within our society as far as making things happen where i think at this time you could argue that it i mean the freaking banks bailed the government out at this time so it definitely was more the capitalists that had all of the power and that's probably important to highlight that the government had to ask the banks for help yeah not the other way around Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Very interesting. All right. Next up. Uh, Quote, between 1860 and 1910, the U.S. Army, wiping out the Indian villages on the Great Plains, paved the way for the railroads to move in and take the best land. Then the farmers came for what was left. From 1860 to 1900, the population of the United States grew from 31 million to 75 million. Now, 20 million people lived west of the Mississippi, and the number of farms grew from 2 million to 6 million. With the crowded cities of the east needing food, the internal market for food was more than doubled. 82% of the farm produce was sold inside the United States. Farming became mechanized. Steel plows, mowing machines, reapers, harvesters, improved cotton gins for pulling the fibers away from the seed, and by the turn of the century, Giant combines that cut the grain, threshed it, and put it in bags. In 1830, a bushel of wheat had taken three hours to produce. By 1900, it took 10 minutes. Specialization developed by region. Cotton and tobacco tobacco in the south, wheat and corn. Corn in the Midwest. <laughs> I love corn. Oh. Land costs money and machines cost money. So farmers had to borrow, hoping that the prices of their harvest would stay high so they could pay the bank for the loan, the railroad for the transportation, the grain merchant for handling the grain, the storage elevator for storing it. 
but they found the prices for their produce going down and the prices of transportation and loans going up because the individual farmer could not control the price of his grain, while the monopolist railroad and the monopolist banker could charge what they liked. The government played its part in helping the bankers and hurting the farmers. It kept the amount of money based on the gold supply steady, while the population rose so there was less and less money in circulation. The farmer had to pay off his debts in dollars that were harder to get. The bankers, getting the loans back, were getting dollars worth more than when they loaned them out, a kind of interest on top of interest. That is why so much of the talk of farmers' movements in those days had to do with putting more money in circulation by printing greenbacks, paper money for which there was no gold in the treasury, or by making silver a basis for issuing money. This also kind of makes sense now during the last chapter of the other civil war, why so much energy was sucked up into pursuing the transition to the greenback policy. They're talking, like Marx was talking about how, um, yeah, like all their political energy. The drive for greenbacks sucked the life out of the radical cause. Right. This kind of makes it fairly evident, like, Make, it makes sense that yeah. why why that was so pressing and on everybody's mind and they were trying to get that. It was super important. It was an issue, for sure. Yeah. Continuing the quote, It was in Texas that the Farmers' Alliance movement began. It was in the South that the crop lien system was most brutal. By this system, the farmer would get the things he needed from the merchant. The use of the cotton gin at harvest time, whatever supplies were necessary. He didn't have money to pay, so the merchant would get a lien, a mortgage on his crop on which the farmer might pay 25% interest. Goodwin says, the crop lien system became for millions of Southerners, white and black, little more than a modified form of slavery. The man with the ledger became to the farmer the furnishing man, to back to black farmers simply the man. The farmer would owe more money every year until finally his farm was taken away and became a tenant. Goodwin gives two personal histories to illustrate this. A white farmer in South Carolina between 1887 and 1895 bought goods and services from the furnishing merchant for $2,681.02, but was only able to pay $687.31, and finally he had to give his land to the merchant. A black farmer named Matt Brown in Black Hawk, Mississippi, between 1884 and 1901, bought his supplies from the Jones store, kept falling further and further behind. And in 1905, the last entry in the merchant's ledger is for a coffin and burial supplies. Woof. That's a wild ledger. Yeah, yeah. In the height of the 1877 Depression, a group of white farmers gathered together on a farm in Texas and formed the first Farmers' Alliance. In a few years, it was across the state. By 1882, there were 120 sub-alliances in 12 counties. By 1886, 100,000 farmers had joined in 2,000 sub-alliances. They began to offer alternatives to the old system. Join the alliance and form cooperatives, buy things together and get lower prices. They began putting their cotton together and selling it cooperatively. They called it bulking. From the beginning, the Farmers' Alliance showed sympathy with the growing labor movement. When Knights of Labor Men went on strike against a steamship line in Galveston, Texas, one of the radical leaders of the Texas Alliance, William Lamb, spoke for many, but not all, Alliance members when he said in an open letter to Alliance people, 
knowing that the day is not far distant when the Farmers Alliance will have to use boycott on manufacturers in order to get goods direct, we think it is a good time to help the Knights of Labor. Goodwin says, Alliance radicalism, populism, began with this letter. Organizers from Texas came to Georgia to form alliances, and in three years, Georgia had 100,000 members in 134 of the 137 counties. In Tennessee, there were soon 125,000 members and 3,600 sub-alliances in 92 of the state's 96 counties. The alliance moved into Mississippi like a cyclone, someone said, (laughs) and into Louisiana and North Carolina. Then northward into Kansas and the Dakotas, where 35 cooperative warehouses were set up. Now there were 400,000 members in the National Farmers Alliance, and the conditions spurring the alliance onward got worse. Corn, which had brought 45 cents a bushel in 1870, brought 10 cents a bushel in 1889. Harvesting wheat required a machine to bind the wheat before it became too dry. And this cost several hundred dollars, which the farmer had to buy on credit, knowing the $200 would be twice as hard to get in a few years. Then he had to pay a bushel of corn in freight costs for every bushel he shipped. He had to pay the high prices demanded by the grain elevators at the terminals. In the South, the situation was worse than anywhere. 90% of the farmers lived on credit. To meet this situation, the Texas Alliance formed a statewide cooperative a great Texas exchange, which handled the selling of the farmer's cotton in one great transaction. But the exchange itself needed loans to advance credit to its members. The banks refused. A call was issued to farmers to scrape together the needed capital for the exchange to operate. Thousands came on June 9, 1888, to 200 Texas courthouses and made their contributions, pledging $200,000. Ultimately, $80,000 was actually collected. It was not enough. The farmers' poverty prevented them from helping themselves. The banks won, and this persuaded the alliances that monetary reform was crucial. There was one victory along the way. Farmers were being charged too much for jute bags to put cotton in, which were controlled by a trust. The alliance farmers organized a boycott of jute, made their own bags out of cotton, and forced the jute manufacturers to start selling their bags at five cents a yard instead of 14 cents. In 1890, 38 alliance people were elected to Congress. In the South, the alliance elected governors in Georgia and Texas. It took over the Democratic Party in Georgia and won three-fourths of the seats in the Georgia legislature, six of Georgia's 10 congressmen. This was, however, Goodwin says, an elusive revolution because the party machinery remained in the hands of the old crowd and the crucial chairmanships of important committees in Congress in the state legislatures remained in the hands of the conservatives and corporate power in the states in the nation could use its money to still get what it wanted end quote I'm very curious uh, there's something happening at this time that's creating really high barriers to entry for all the like the non-farmer portions of the supply chain. So when they're talking about like the grain elevators, the rail transportation, rail transportation makes sense why there's high barrier to entry. It's very costly to put rails to a place. And then once you have those rails, you can't have a competitor. Like a competitor is not going to also build rails, like a track right along next to you. So that high barrier to entry makes sense. But even within the lending, where they are having to pay 25% interest, 
Like there's nobody else out there. No competitor could be like, hey, we'll charge you 20. And it's lending, so you don't care who you're getting the rate from. You just want the best rate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm – yeah, this from, from like the – Because if you're only charging 20%, you're still making 20%. You're still making money. <laughs> you're still making a ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 20% interest. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there, I, I, I want to learn more, yeah, about the, the market realities at the time and, like, what was allowing some of this? I'm really okay. very curious. A question for you on that. Yeah. I mean, because Zinn, we're like right at the end of the chapter, sort of. Mm-hmm. Zinn begins the chapter with the robber barons. Right. And has been arguing with, talking about the Sherman Antitrust Act. Yep, yep. And the jute, yeah, some the, of the jute bags were part of a trust, I yeah. think he says. Um, so, I mean, how much of this is just monopolies? There's Yeah, there's a good portion of that. But there seems... Uh, Probably, especially when it came to shipping, most of it. It's the railroads. It's the that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, um, the grain elevators. That's an interesting one that I've never learned much about. Um, yeah, and we, <laughs> and uh, there, it was mentioned in here that that if, gr- if you came out with like the history of grain elevation, yeah. I'd be like, oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. It'll be a good time. Uh, although we did, we did. It did say earlier that you know that grain elevators were one of the in, the initial. Um, like company groups that got a corporation um, personhood, earned personhood, which is an interesting Yeah, we discussed the personhood thing. I hate that. Hate it, really? Yeah, I don't think a corporation is a person. Well, it is not literally a person, correct, but it is made up of people. Yeah, I don't think in any way, shape, or form a corporation is a person. I think it's nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I am on this. I don't understand yeah. it. I, I understand that corporations being granted personhood gives them access to rights of a person, which is important for a company to have rights. Like just because if you and I start a company and set okay, wait, it up as a corporation. Pause right there. Yeah. I agree. It's important for a company to have rights. Yeah. However, I don't think that company rights and person rights right, right. should be in the same pot because I don't think a company and a person is the same thing. I... Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and maybe maybe the problem is is we uh yeah, they just they just like they just papered over the fact that companies maybe they should have gotten their own bill of rights, effectively. Yeah, somebody should have sat down and said, Hey, we got this thing called companies. Yeah, corporations. And we don't want them yeah. to go away. Mm-hmm. So how should we deal with them? <laughs> and you know, it's not yeah, it's, it's shocking to me. Shocking, well, and the fact that they use the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah, that was funny, in like in an, in a not funny way. Yeah, wild. That's that's what I was saying with the lawyers, where it becomes it, it feels like it's, it's a just game. a game. Yeah, like yeah. like uh, yeah, yeah, dude. I was the one that got personhood for corporations out of the Fourteenth Amendment. Can you believe, Can you believe that? that? Oh yeah, dude. Uh, Everyone's going. No, you can't <laughs> believe that. How'd you do that? How did you do that? Teach yeah. us your ways. Yeah, exactly. Um. Yeah, the personhood is something that um, I never paid enough attention to in business school. Sure. Um, but one of the ways to think about it is, you know, there's different ways to set up a company. There's partnerships, LLCs, corporations, right? So let's say it's a partnership. So if you set it up as a partnership, that's really common in like medical practice or lawyers Just saying like, I went to school, I became a doctor, I am now a practiced physician, 
I can open my own practice and all of the, the company is going to fall under me, the individual, right? So I, I am the sole owner and basically the only person here, like, because I can charge people for my services. That's, um, like set up as a partnership. If that, that clearly that setup as like, I am a doctor who has a doctor's office needs to kind of have the protections of personhood, right? That kind of makes sense because that business only exists because of the person who started. Well, yeah, because you're talking about a person. A person, right. Yeah. Uh, Tracking on that. Yeah. So the downside of that setup is you also bear all of the risk. Um, so it's really common with accounting practices too. But anyways, so uh, if your company gets sued, so Ethan Ethan Cahey and Associates, but the Associates is like your, your dog, so it's just you in the office. If your company yeah, yeah. gets sued, you are you are getting sued personally. Sure, corporations just allow, and like LLCs, uh, they allow you to like shift the liability, so they create a new legal entity, and I guess a person that like I'm not suing you, Ethan. I'm suing the corporation. The downside of the corporation is double taxation. Upside of the the uh, partnership is you only get taxed at the individual income rate once. Corporation corporation gets taxed, and then when you get your salary or you get paid out profits from it, yeah. that also gets taxed. So okay, so you said partnership is LLC. That's corporation limited liability company. So is LLC different than corporation? Yeah, yeah. It's it it has the benefits. Some of the benefits of a corporation, um, uh, super easy to set up. Doesn't have a lot of the regulatory requirements, but you can't. Um, you wouldn't be able to raise capital like a corporation can, where corporations can like sell off shares and um, stocks and bonds and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. And then you mentioned, I don't know if you want to get into this next, but you mentioned the co-op, cooperative. Uh huh. You want to talk about cooperatives a little bit? I do, and it makes a ton of sense that farmers would put together a cooperative. Do you think of cooperative coming out of capitalism? Um, yeah, I mean. It, if, it, if it's people um, freely choosing to form a, cooper- a, co- a cooperative, then yeah. Okay. Because I've always heard that um, like a co-op is sort of like um, a technique out of socialism. Um, but I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know the history. I just heard that. <clears throat> oh, so I don't know if the idea, I, I don't know if the idea of how a co-op should work came out of capitalism. I don't know that, like the structure of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as far as like entering into a cooperative, sure, why not? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so some of my uh, my new radical Marxist podcast buddies that I've been listening to talk about we need more co-ops. Oh, yeah. This is a way to move forward is more co-ops. Yeah, I don't believe that. But I'm not saying we have enough. I'm saying it's very handy for specific things. Why farming, right? I think it's awesome for farming. Yeah, why? yeah. So you need... You need a lot of individual farmers to make up the farming economy, right? One person can't do it all. Um, and <clears throat> there's economies of scale. With anything that produces a product that is that there's no differentiation between, like I don't, uh, Ethan, you have a farm, I have a farm. Nobody cares if it's Ethan's bushel of corn or Jason's bushel of corn. 
Oh, they're they going to carry with my bushel of corn. My bushel of corn is better. Well, we're going to stay in this time period because as we came forward right now, we've been able to create differentiation even within agriculture. We modified those genes. Not just modified, but like we have organic, we have, right? We have all yeah, these yeah, terms yeah. that we now use that has created differentiation. It's a common uh, example when you're talking about lack of differentiation to go, you go to the store and you see a gallon of milk for a buck fifty, and you see, I don't know what a gallon of milk costs nowadays. Uh, you see a gallon of milk for two bucks, you see a gallon of milk for a buck ninety-five. You're going to buy a buck ninety-five because it's exactly the same. You don't care. Right. Yeah. That's the argument. Now there is differentiation. But since when there's a lack of that, that and <clears throat> there's definitely economies of scale in farming and there's high capital costs for some of your machinery. Right. You need to get your um, nowadays your combines. Combines are super expensive. Yeah. But a combine can doesn't care how many fields it has to do combiney things to. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's just like a timing thing, right? So there can be a benefit from farmers that have, uh, uh, you go in together, which they talk about in here. What you're saying is sharing is caring. <laughs> well, sharing. What you're saying is teamwork makes the dream work. Teamwork makes the dream work, yeah. But sharing is also profitable within this within this format. Yeah. It doesn't, like the combine doesn't care what field it's doing its thing on, if it's a cornfield, right? It doesn't care if it's Ethan's corn or if it's Jason corn. So will have kind of shared ownership of it. Um, I don't love shared ownership because there is the problem of like who gets to decide like when the oil needs to be changed and who gets to decide like how clean the combine should be after the end of the day. So the, but that's a, that's a whole nother thing. Sure. So a co cooperative in this sense um, is definitely valuable. And then it takes a lot of, um, uh, a lot of people who have basically no power or no, no voice and kind of helps like group them up because farmers are price takers. They just, they just have to take whatever the price of corn is at the marketplace at that time. And I don't know why corn prices were plummeting like they were at this time. Either. Yeah, real bummer. Like where was the supply coming in? Was it just more productive fields? Cause that can happen where no, there's no like new trade routes open. It's just, we had a bumper crop year and commerce, the farmers just get crushed. Because they have way more than they yeah, too thought. Much. Was, mm -hmm, too much. But I also wonder if futures existed in the U.S. at this time. You had to find a future for me. Okay, so futures contract. I mean, I know, I know like the rapper, obviously. But, yeah. But, uh, uh, futures contract um, uh, originated in Japan, actually, in like the, I think, late 1700s. Huh. Um, basically, you find uh, someone on the other side of, of a trade where you agree to a fixed price um, on delivery of a good at a future date, future. So huh. I have to grow corn and, uh, all of the cost is up front. I need to buy the seed. I need to get the field ready right now. Yep. And I have no product to sell until near the fall. So I enter into a, a contract where we agree on a price that I will sell it to you. So let's say you're the buyer in the fall at a fixed price. And it doesn't matter what the market price is at that time. If it goes up or if it goes down, I get the price we agreed upon oh. in the spring. I give so, you the money in advance. Uh, probably not. <clears throat> oh, it's just but, it's just fixed price. That's what the future. But does. it locks in the contract, and then I can take that. Let's maybe you are also my my financer. Maybe you're also lending to me for for the seed. Okay. But I now have this futures contract. I have a guaranteed price on a guaranteed um, amount because I have to deliver the amount right. What there'll be some defined amount that I'm going to deliver. You know, 100 bushels to you at a fixed price, 45 cents 
whatever the second yeah. year, right? In the future. Um, but then I can take that and I can borrow against it from the bank, from a different lender or from yourself. So futures were super important. Um, innovation, especially in agriculture, um, to remove the risk of some of the seasonality of risk. Um, and then also like crop insurance and other stuff that, that, that came up as well. But yeah, cause now, you know, you no longer have price uncertainty, you know, you have yeah. all the other uncertainties, but now you don't have to worry about what the price is going to be at the end, at the end of the year. So, yeah, I was like going to shop over at the REI co-op cause I get that, I get that dividend check. Yeah, I, get, I get that $2 and 60 cents every year. Yeah. And that's, I don't know. I think, I think some people are a little, uh, overexcited about like co-ops but imagine if everywhere i shopped was a co-op yeah <laughs> then i'd begin like 26 dollars and 31 cents every year yeah but yeah you'd probably also be paying a higher price for the goods oh all right, all right. maybe i don't know huh. yeah i don't think it's a i don't think it's a a cure-all i i i thought it was interesting seeing um the agrarian, I think he calls it the agrarian sort of like populist movement sort of like mm-hmm. join ranks with what we talked about last week, what was going on in the factories, nights of the labor. Yeah, yeah, the um, city. Uh, and you almost had a city-country divide almost yeah. coming together. Almost, yeah. Almost coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't uh, doesn't quite last, which brings us to our last quote. Let's see anything else. No, yeah. Okay. Quote, when the Texas People's Party was founded in Dallas in the summer of 1891, it was interracial and radical. There was blunt and vigorous debate among whites and blacks. A black delegate, active in the Knights of Labor, dissatisfied with vague statements about equality, said, If we are equal, why does not the sheriff summon Negroes on juries? And why hang up the sign, Negro, in passenger cars? I want to tell my people what the People's Party is going to do. I want to tell them if it is going to work a black and white horse in the same field. A white leader responded by urging there be a black delegate from every district in the state. They are in the ditch just like we are. When someone suggested there be separate white and black populist clubs, which would confer together. Oh, man. R.M. Humphrey, the white leader of the Colored Alliance, Pause. That's a little weird to me. The white leader of the Colored Alliance. <laughs> I didn't even pick it up. That's yeah, funny. <laughs> I read that and I was like, uh, that's, that's not a good sign. <laughs> Back to the quote. Objected. This will not do. The colored people are part of the people and they must be recognized as such. Two blacks were then elected to the state executive committee of the party. Blacks and whites were in different situations. The blacks were mostly field hands, hired laborers. Most white alliance people were farm owners. When the colored alliance declared a strike in the cotton fields in 1891 for a dollar a day, wages for cotton pickers, Leonidas Polk, head of the white alliance, denounced it as hurting the alliance farmer who would have to pay that wage. In Arkansas, a 30-year-old black cotton picker named Ben Patterson led the strike traveling from plantation to plantation to get support, his band growing, engaging in gun battles with a white posse. A plantation manager was killed. A cotton gin burned. Patterson and his band were caught, and 15 of them were shot to death. Racism was strong, and the Democratic Party played on this, winning many farmers from the populist party. When white tenants, failing in the crop lien system, were evicted from their land and replaced by blacks, 
race hatred intensified. Southern states were drawing up new constitutions, starting with Mississippi in 1890, to prevent blacks from voting by various devices and to maintain ironclad segregation in every aspect of life. The laws that took the vote away from blacks, poll taxes, literacy tests, property qualifications, also often ensured that poor whites would not vote. And the political leaders of the South knew this. At the Constitutional Convention in Alabama, one of the leaders said he wanted to take away the vote from all those who are unfit and unqualified. And if the rule strikes a white man as well as a Negro, let him go. In North Carolina, the Charlotte Observer saw disfranchisement as the struggle of the white people of North Carolina to rid themselves of the dangers of the rule of Negroes and the lower class of whites. According to Lawrence Goodwin, if the labor movement had been able to do in the cities what the populace did in the rural areas, to create among urban workers a culture of cooperation, self-respect, and economic analysis, there might have been a great movement for change in the United States. There were only fitful, occasional connections between the farmer and labor movements. Neither spoke eloquently enough to the other's needs. And yet, there were signs of a common consciousness that might, under different circumstances, lead to a unified, ongoing movement. Norman Pollock says, on the basis of a close study of Midwestern populist newspapers, that populism regarded itself as a class movement, reasoning that farmers and workers were assuming the same material position in society. An editorial in the Farmers Alliance spoke of a man working 14 to 16 hours a day. He is brutalized, both morally and physically. He has no ideas, only propensities. He has no beliefs, only instincts. Pollock sees that as a homespun version of Marx's ideas of workers' alienation from his human self under capitalism, and finds many other parallels between populist and Marxist ideas. On top of the serious failures to unite blacks and whites, city workers and country farmers, there was the lure of electoral politics, all of that combining to destroy the populist movement. Once allied with the Democratic Party in supporting William Jennings Bryan for president in 1896, Populism would drown in a sea of democratic politics. The pressure for electoral victory led populism to make deals with the major parties in city after city. If the Democrats won, it would be absorbed. If the Democrats lost, it would disintegrate. Electoral politics brought into the top leadership the political brokers instead of the agrarian radicals. In the election of 1896, with the populist movement enticed into the Democratic Party, Bryan, Democratic candidate was defeated by William McKinley, for whom the corporations and the press mobilized, and the first massive use of money in an election campaign. Even the hint of populism in the Democratic Party, it seemed, could not be tolerated, and the big guns of the establishment pulled out all their ammunition to make sure. End quote. Yeah. Get those populists out of here. Goodbye, populists. Um... Uh, what, what do you think the lure of electoral politics was that Sin referred to? Where he says, on top of the serious failures to unite blacks and whites, city workers and country farmers, there was the lure of electoral politics. Yeah. So I think it's the same thing we talked about last time with Marx complaining about the greenbacks. Okay. And I think it's also the same thing we talked about earlier in the episode uh, with uh, Grover Cleveland and the, the lure of reality TV. Sure. Okay. It's almost as like biological lure of like, let's just like go for this kind of like little small stuff. Although 
I I should probably there's a difference between the greenbacks thing and yeah. reality TV. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Um, but there's this just giant sort of like political machine that goes and goes and goes. Right. And if you want change, if you enter into the machine, the machine's probably going to win. Sure. Yeah. If you can somehow stay outside the machine and get the machine to meet your demands while remaining organized on the outside, that's probably the only chance you're going to have because the machine mm. will eat you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And now, that makes more sense. Yeah. And I don't know if you're going to bring this up, but I saw you made a note here. It is interesting to think about uh, Trump yeah. as entering the machine via sort of this populist right. thing. Right. Um, now, you could also argue he did end up getting eaten by the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think he got eaten by the machine more so by, well, I would argue, uh, a lack of morality and ethics. Yeah. Um, he could have made different choices mm-hmm. and not gotten eaten probably. Yeah, no, because that was one thing I was wondering. Did we have a populist president for the last four years, an outsider? It's hard for people to see him as an outsider because he's uh, allegedly a billionaire. Well, he's for sure an elite. Yes, exactly. So how much of an outsider was he? Um, But he was outside the political system. He was not a politician. Yeah. So, yeah, that was just kind of made me think, like, just interesting. But one thing that I really wanted to talk about, uh, Lawrence Goodwin. We're just talking about the labor movement, um, what they've been able to do in the cities and the populace in the rural areas. Yeah. To create among urban workers a culture of cooperation, self-respect, and economic analysis. Like, um, that self-respect and economic analysis, that is like, I'm starting to realize how powerful that is. Like, if you know your value, if you know your value, and if, again, with cooperation, everyone in your community has a similar sense of value like you will not accept these suboptimal wages or conditions. You're just gonna say no. Yeah, and yeah. that will force change. I well, I think that's what's happening with courage. Yeah, it requires courage to produce change. And then yeah. this is probably a yeah, self-respect, economic analysis. Yeah, yeah, and that's and, and oftentimes what drives down, not oftentimes, literally what drives down labor, um, more so now than when people could. There was some, by the way. Those of you reading along, I know we skipped a bunch of pages in this chapter. They started talking about strike. He started talking about strikes again. And not that, like, we covered those in the last episode, so it would have just been, like, reiterating. But one of the things he mentioned is that at a couple of these locales, um, with the when the workers went on strike, they would literally just ship people in on rail cars, um, immigrants in on rail yeah. cars, who maybe didn't even know where they were going. They yep. couldn't even see. They would just show up and it's like, make steel. Um, or whatever the the factory produced. This wild thing about being an immigrant, being like, <laughs> "Hey, I got a job for you. Great, cool. When do I start? Now." Tossing a rail car, how many hours? And then like S- sometimes what, days. What, yeah. what is going on? Yeah, yeah. W- wild. So yeah, that's a wild story, and that's why I hope you are reading along because there's more than we can get to in every episode. But um, that what drives down wages is somebody is willing to take the lower price. If you, if you have a job that a bunch of people are qualified for, somebody is going to be willing to maybe work for a little less. And that'll drive down the wages. Um, but it's interesting you, game theory. If you have a strong, yeah, if you have like a strong sense of self-worth built within the community that that job is going to be offered. And I keep saying community because it's going to be different in each area. That's one of the things I love about America and the difference of the states, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What you need to survive as far as what you need to have like, from a financial standpoint, a reasonably comfortable life in Milwaukee is different than it is in New York, 
it's different than it different is in than it is in LA. It's different than it is in LA. I'll tell yes. you that personal experience. Yeah, and and you see those uh, job differences, right? Like the a very similar job um, coming out of college for uh, like the finance profession. If let's say let's pay say it paid like sixty thousand in Milwaukee, very similar job in New York would pay probably like a hundred hundred twenty thousand. Yeah, but you're also like your quality of life is basically the same because the cost of living is so much different. But anyways, back to that's why I was focusing on communities. But if you have that strong sense of uh, self-respect and you have some understanding of either economics, personal finances or the marketplace that like makes you as a group, even without getting together. Right. You don't all have to get together and decide on it yourself. It just makes you so much more powerful where people are just at the level of the family willing to just say no and just walk away from unreasonable requirements or unreasonable situations. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good point. That's interesting for sure. I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah, I don't have like much it. more than that. That was my wrap up. Yeah, that's great. Perfect wrap up. Um, yeah, feel free to send us any kind of emails you want. The emails in the description. Next week we'll be in chapter 12, The, the Empire and the people smoke. thanks for coming out the to the Daedalus workshop all. I'm going to leave you with some more uh, the farmer's demand the test. everyone have if a the farmer week. took Cheers. a rest then they'd know that it's the farmer feeds them all oh the farmer is the man the farmer is the man lives on credit till the fall and his pants are wearing thin His condition, it's a sin He's forgot that he's the man who feeds them all